Welcome to New City Church. This is Matt Freeman, and we are so thankful you are studying the Word of God with us. Jesus founded New City after our forever home, the New Jerusalem from Revelation 21. He wrote our mission statement to foster, strengthen, and grow an unashamed bride looking for Jesus' return. Let's lean completely on the anointing of the Holy Spirit to teach us all things from 1 John 2.27. God is so eager to teach you the depth of his word. Enjoy the study. Okay, good morning, everybody. We, we may need to allow more time in between. I don't know, maybe we need to add more things to the prophecy update. Uh, gosh, you know, when you look at the prophecy update, it is pretty wild just what's going on in the world today and what's, what's out there and you know, with what's going on in Israel, I hope all of you are still paying attention to what's going on in Israel because we're now, we're now past two months of the war over there and what's been happening. And it is, things are just continuing to heat up and you need to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. You need to pay, pray for the peace of Israel. You need to pray for um, God to intervene in there because things could spiral out of control very quickly. I know we've talked a lot about that, but it really can. So... Before we get started here in Zechariah 10, let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer and just dedicate this time to him and let him teach us everything out of this chapter. Lord, we thank you so much for your time together. God, I thank you that this amazing book you have preserved for so many thousands and thousands of years. And Lord, I ask that you would teach us everything out of Zechariah 10 as we look at the strengthening of Israel. Lord, you foretold it. Lord, you've prophesied about it. It's coming together. And Lord, I pray for peace over Israel, Lord. We do lift up Jerusalem and your people in Israel. It is the eternal capital of the Jews and of your future kingdom, Jesus. And we thank you, God, that we get to study prophecy and just watch it come to pass in the headlines every day in the world that we are living in right now as things continue to speed up and God, I thank you that you are giving us eyes to see and ears to hear what you're doing in this world right now. So be with us as we study your word and be with us as we leave this place in the week ahead, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, we're going to unpack chapter 10 today. And, you know, we're getting near the end of the book here. There's, there's only 14 chapters in Zechariah. And so we've got you know, just another, another month or so left in it. And when you look at the timeline, I've, I've actually been asking the Lord what book he wants us to do next because you look at this Old Testament timeline and there are, we're stu we've studied the end of the exiles where we're at right now, the post-exile time when the, Israel's back in the land, they're trying to rebuild the temple, they're not getting very far and they're struggling and it's just before you're talking 550 years or so before Jesus shows up in the earth. And at this point, Zechariah is looking far beyond the time of just rebuilding the temple. And he's looking prophetically now. We've shifted in this time of this part of the book where he's looking at the, the arrival of the Messiah and then eventually the setting up of the kingdom. And what I love about Zechariah is it is just so rich. And it is it is probably the most messianic book in the entire Old Testament. And the Lord is, speaks of Jesus throughout the whole thing. You know, I've tr been trying as we've been going through the chapters here 
to pull that out and illuminate it for all of you. But the stone with seven eyes, remember we studied that as a link to Revelation. His throne and Jesus being crowned, we studied that when he talks about Joshua, the high priest. We studied Jesus, the Nazarene. The king riding on a donkey was in Zechariah 9.9 a couple weeks ago. The shepherd who's smitten, he's betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. And then actually what they do with the money is also covered. And then Jesus being crucified or pierced, we'll see that in chapter 12. And then in chapter 14, we'll see Jesus returning in power and destroying his enemies by the word of his mouth. And literally they are dissolved before him. And it's a look ahead at Armageddon or the staging ground of Armageddon, so to speak. But his return in power, you know, when he speaks, he's just going to let them go. All the enemies around Jerusalem just dissolve right there before him. It's, it's pretty graphic in Zechariah 14. We may need to call that service like a PG-13 or something uh, when we get there. No, I'm kidding. But it's, it's in God's word, so we're going to look at it. So here's our outline, what we've been going through. And we're in that, that last part of Zechariah 9 through 11 where it just details prophetically the first arrival of our king. And the second arrival of Christ starts in chapter 12, which is just incredible. It's, it's 12, 13, and 14. Now, if you remember, the first six chapters all occurred in one night. And those six chapters covered a wide spectrum of history for Israel, covering from Zechariah's time all the way to the establishment of the kingdom. And the final, the final six chapters also cover the time all the way to the establishment of the kingdom. So there's a little bit of an overlap. Chapters 9 through 11, which we're covering, and we're right in the middle of today, they outline the first advent of Christ in 12 through 14, the second. And remember, we studied how they had all of those, those fasts that they kept, they institute on their own. They weren't in the Bible, and they were instituting those fasts if morning and God, remember he says he's gonna turn those fasts into feasts and joy and laughter and turn their sorrow into joy. And I just wanna encourage each of you, you know, we, going through life, we live in a fallen world in a fallen state, obviously. And we live in a place where it's not always rosy. It's not always sunshine and rainbows. You know, it's not always Emmett from the Lego movie, right? Everything is awesome. It's not always that, uh, but when you're in the word of God and you're overflowing with the Holy Spirit, you can always have that perspective, no matter what you're going through. And Israel went through a lot of really hard times and God turned their fasts and will turn them into feasts. And I just wanna encourage each of you that no matter what you're going through in your life or what you have been through in your life, God wants to do something with it. And he wants you to have a joyful perspective no matter what is going on, because it is temporary. Whatever you're in, involved in, whatever's going on in your life, no matter how hard it may seem, it's, it's temporary. And he wants you to be encouraged because there's going to come a time that all of that sheds away and you are going to literally live with him on the earth in the kingdom. And there will never be sorrow in your life ever again at that point. So please just keep that perspective, you know, no matter what's going on. The Jews know that a kingdom will be established from Acts 1, 6, and 7. Remember, remember they come to him, they ask Jesus, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus said, and he said unto them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. So remember, Jesus did not dispute 
He didn't dispute that a kingdom would be set up. He said it's not for them to know the time that's going to be set up. And a lot of us, what you're walking through in your lives, you don't know the time that something radical will change or God will change your circumstances or move something in your life to better you, but you just keep marching and you keep following him every step of the way. And they know, the Jews know that a Messiah will come rule and reign on the earth. It's amazing that the enemy knows that, the Jews know that, and yet most of the church denies that. And that to me is such a tragedy. It's so sad that a lot of God's people do not realize that Jesus is coming back, he is setting up a kingdom, and you have more to look forward to than you've ever been through in your life. The best days are ahead for you, literally. They are ahead. And when you can recognize that, you really can endure anything this world throws at you and the enemy throws at you. Okay, so open up chapter, chapter 10 here, verse one. Ask ye of the Lord, reign in the time of the latter rain so that the Lord shall make bright clouds and give them showers of rain to everyone grass in the field. Now, some people actually view verse one as the closing verse of chapter nine, and it's not to split hairs here. Just remember that chapter breaks are man-made markers. They're not, they're not divided that way by the Holy Spirit. So just keep that in mind when you're reading. Uh, you see that with Cyrus and Isaiah a lot. The last few verses of a chapter really are a continuation of the next chapter where God's prophesying of Cyrus taking over and conquering Babylon. But in any case, chapter 10, verse one here, the opening verse, it's got both a physical and a spiritual application. So in the scripture, God uses rain to symbolize the Holy Spirit or water, pouring out of water, rain. Remember when uh, Jesus was on the cross and they pierced his side, what came out? water and blood, and they were separated, the water being the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the blood being what was needed to cleanse us, obviously, that Jesus took to the mercy seat in heaven and sprinkled on it. Um, up until that point, blood had never been on the mercy seat in heaven because there never was anything worthy until Jesus died uh, because the blood of bulls and goats were just a mere shadow of the true sacrifice. But the, the Holy Spirit, this rain, there will be a mighty outpouring of the Spirit upon restored Israel in the millennium. The nation has yet to enjoy what we in the church take for granted a lot of the time, which is the indwelling Holy Spirit. The nation's never had that. Now, Jews that are a part of the church enjoy that right now, but I'm saying the nation as a whole, as that people group. And they, in the millennium, they get to enjoy that, what you and I have right now in the church, that the Holy Spirit is indwelling them permanently Hosea 6.3 says, Then shall we know, if we follow on to know the Lord, his going forth is prepared as the morning, and he shall come unto us as the rain, as the latter and former rain unto the earth. And then that's prophesied and quoted in Acts 2.17-18. through 18. And it shall come to pass in the last day, saith God, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh and your sons. He's speaking to the Jews right now. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaidens, I will pour out in those last days, in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And that's all quoted from Joel 2, verses 28 through 29. So that verse, this opening verse may have a spiritual application. I think it does. There also, there's also the blessing of a literal reign if they obey God. 
And the productivity of the land was promised as a direct reward to obedience. And that's all in Leviticus 26, 3 through 4 and Deuteronomy 11, 13 through 15. Look at Deuteronomy 11, 13 and 14. It shall come to pass if you shall hearken diligently unto my commandments, which I command you this day, to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, that I will give you the rain of your land in his due season, the first rain and the latter rain, that thou mayest gather in thy corn and thy wine and thine oil. See, droughts are always a cursing from God because man doesn't control weather. Despite what anyone out there tells you, man does not control weather, okay? I promise. Um, <laughs> God actually promised uh, that he set the bounds of the sea and they shall not pass until he says. There's twice in Genesis and once in Jeremiah God says that, so don't, do not worry about ice caps melting and flooding cities, anything like that. It's amazing if you look at pictures over hundreds of years, the water's in the exact same spot that the ocean is set at because that's what the Bible says. God set the bounds, not man. And giving of rain is a blessing by God. Remember Elijah shut up the heavens in the Old Testament? Remember it didn't rain? And you don't know that it was Elijah. Remember in the Old Testament, we learned Elijah opened the heavens, but we didn't know it was him that shut them up until you get to the New Testament. And that happens again in, in the tribulation. But look at Jeremiah 3, verse 3. Therefore, the showers have been withholden, and there hath been no latter rain. And thou hadst a whore's forehead, thou refusest to be ashamed. What God's saying to Israel there is, you practiced whoredoms and abominations, and you had no shame about it. I called you out for it. I sent prophets to you, you've got my word, you know you shouldn't do that or follow through with that, and you didn't have any shame in your head and you never turned back to me. And as a result, you did not get rain on your land. That's all in Jeremiah 3.3. 3. The best way for Israel actually to get more water would be to turn toward God. And actually, if you look at a, a satellite image of Israel versus the rest of the Middle East, the Middle East is barren, except Israel. It's the only fruitful land over there. They are the world's largest exporter of fruit to Europe, if you can imagine that. Again, they're one-tenth the size of our state, of the state of Oklahoma, and yet they export more fruit to Europe than any other nation in the world. Just think about that. Now, part of it may be because Europe is kind of going uh, very woke and weird. Uh, they may not think watering their crops is the right thing to do. I don't know. They're, they're getting real strange over there. <laughs> uh, pray for them, pray for the Europeans, because uh, we, need, we need God to move there also. But scarcity of rain, it's one of the curses in the tribulation period. That's all in Revelation eleven six. And actually in the millennium, there's a judgment that if you do not keep the Feast of Tabernacles, God does not give your nation rain. And he prophesies that Egypt will not have rain. And this is all in Zechariah 14. So let's look at these verses right here, starting in 17. Verse 17, and it shall be that whoso will not come up of all the families of the earth unto Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, even upon them shall be no rain. So there's a commandment for all nations of the earth to come up and to worship Jesus at the Feast of Tabernacles in the millennium. Now, I, I'm, I'll be honest, I don't know exactly how that's going to look or work, but it's amazing God's put it there. I don't think you and I as the church at this time will be a family of the nation of the earth necessarily because we come back with Jesus uh, to rule and reign with him. 
But if the family, in verse 18 here, if the family of Egypt go not up and come not that have no rain, there shall be the plague wherewith the Lord will smite the heathen that come not up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, notice God's prophesying in verse 18 that despite not having rain and them living in a drought in Egypt, they're still not going to come up to the Feast of Tabernacles. I mean, how stubborn is the heart of man? So they're, not, they're still not gonna come up and so God strikes them with a plague and then they still don't come up. And so verse 19, this shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all nations that come not up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Now that's amazing. So you have God has a blessing and a cursing in the millennium, just like in the Old Testament. Remember when God laid out to them, choose this day whom you will, you will serve. I lay before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Choose this day whom you will serve. And of course, remember Joshua, the famous verse, as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. And Joshua saw a great blessing for that. In verse two here, for the idols have spoken vanity and the diviners have seen a lie and have told false dreams. They comfort in vain. Therefore, they went their way as a flock. They were troubled because there was no shepherd. Now, the Hebrew word here for idols is teraphim. It means a household God. I wanna ask all of you for a show of hands, how many of you have a household God set up on a shelf at home? I'm, I'm guessing zero, uh, but that's what this reference is. It doesn't really take place in our culture very much, right? But people do it a different way. They find other things to worship, uh, whether it's you know, a career, uh, chasing the God of more. I talked about that at youth group a few weeks ago. Max remembers. But chasing the God of more, it might be, uh, worshiping a family member or you know, an athlete. or There's all kinds of things in our culture right, that we worship today that people get trapped in. But archaeologists have actually discovered some tablets near Nineveh that give us some clues on these household gods. These tablets, what they discovered from the writing is that possession in that ancient culture, possession of these household gods implied leadership of the family. How ironic you know, that they viewed that as leadership in the family when actually true leadership is serving Yahweh as the head of the household and leading your family that way. Also, they were the key to the father's property. So when you get to Genesis 31, you, you have a better understanding of why Rachel took the household God from Laban. Remember, she stole it off his shelf and she sat on it on the camel when Laban and his household came and overtook uh, Jacob and Rachel, and, and she hid that idol. See, to her, she was taking her father's property. She had then right to all of his household in her eyes. Um, I don't know why Jacob was not spiritually mature enough to recognize that, hey, that's not right. Let's leave that there. But that's, that's what's going on there in Genesis 31 when she tries to take that teraphim. The diviners is a reference to the occultic people counterfeiting prophecy, and you actually see this a lot today through channeling familiar spirits, necromancy, you know, et cetera. All of that is strictly forbidden in the Old Testament and in, in the word of God. You are not to seek anyone, um, a psychic, tarot cards, horoscopes, channeling, familiar spirits. Demons have been around for ages and ages and ages. They know what your great grandparents did. They know what your grandparents did. They know what your mom and dad did. They know more about your family lineage than you could ever remember. 
And that's why when they show up, the Bible uses that phrase, familiar spirits, because they'll come and they'll try to deceive you, right? Oh, I'm your grandfather. I remember when, and they'll say something. That's demonic. It's totally demonic and occultic. And if you have things in your house, actually, you can open up doorways to that, gateways, uh, to allow those kind of spirits uh, place. So you need to, what you do is actually you go through your house, read Psalms out loud, read Proverbs out loud, ask the Lord to show you anything in your house you need to get rid of. It could be very simple things, uh, very simple things. It could be uh, Harry Potter books, you know, not to step on any toes or anything, but they teach witchcraft. They teach kids witchcraft. And actually, when they came out, the, the cult of Wicca thanked the Harry Potter books for their increase in enrollment in Wicca because of the books. Now, that's not, you know, that's not some crazy church person saying you need to get rid of those things. That is actually the occult and witches saying thank you for printing those books because it's made it easier for us to recruit children. So just keep things like that in mind. You've got to purge all of those things from your household. But the word divination actually means to cut or divide. Balaam, remember Balaam? He, was a, a, he practiced divination from Numbers 22 and Joshua 13. Divination was used by the Philistines in 1 Samuel 6. Remember, actually, that's a hilarious part of scripture. Remember they stole the Ark of the Covenant and God strikes them all with hemorrhoids? <laughs> And, and they're freaking out going, why is this happening to us? And they use divination and the divination people come and say, well, you've got to take the Ark of the Covenant back, but you need to put an offering in it. And the offering you need to do is to cast five golden hemorrhoids and put them in the Ark of the Covenant. Remember that? That is one of the weirdest parts of scripture. <laughs> and you're sitting there going, I mean, number one, it should tell you not to listen to the divination folks, Right? because they make you do some really crazy things. And then you're wondering, okay, who volunteered to do that? And it's just, it's super awkward. So the Philistines, they practiced divination. It didn't work out well for them. Babylon did. Remember in Isaiah 44, 25 and Ezekiel 21, the false prophets of Israel did in Jeremiah 27, Micah 3, Ezekiel 13, Deuteronomy 18, on and on and on it goes. And this verse in verse two, it actually connects with the latter day idolatry of Israel. And Deuteronomy 18.10 is your verse that divination is always prohibited by God. It's always prohibited. Do not get into it at all. God is referencing false dreams here in verse two as well. Jeremiah 23.32 says, behold, I am against them that prophesy false dreams, saith the Lord, and do tell them and cause my people to err by their lies and by their lightness. Yet I sent them not, nor commanded them, therefore they shall not profit this people at all, saith the Lord. Now remember what happened in Jeremiah, the true prophets of God, remember Jeremiah was saying, hey, you need to submit to Nebuchadnezzar, you need to be obedient to the Lord, surrender to him and you will be blessed and he will provide for you. You're gonna go to Babylon for 70 years, but I'll bring you back. All the, the false prophets were saying, God's going to deliver us from Nebuchadnezzar. Do not listen to Jeremiah, throw him in the dungeon. And we've dreamed these dreams, we've had these false prophecies, and God is saying, no, no, that's not what I said. And as a result, a lot of them were destroyed. Now, if they would have been in the word of God and studying Deuteronomy and Leviticus, they would have known that those were false prophecies or false dreams. 
because God told them over and over, I'm sending you into captivity for 70 years for the land. So there is a great deception actually coming to take over the entire earth, the entire earth. But praise God, we as the church will not be here during that time. That's a strict promise by Jesus. Now the coming great deception in 2 Thessalonians 2, starting in verse 1. Now we beseech you, brethren. Now if you've never studied 2 Thessalonians, maybe that'll be the book we do next. But if you've never studied it, it's all about prophecy. It's all about what happens after the rapture of the church and the Antichrist and all these things God is preparing Israel for. Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him. Our gathering together. That's a, that's a term from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 when the harpazo happens, the rapture, that we will be gathered together to meet the Lord in the air and forever be with him that ye be not soon shaken in mind. Remember last week I, I shared that stat that over 75%, I think it was 75, maybe it was 70, a lot of people in the church are stricken with fear. Are stricken with fear, anxiety, depression, and why? Because they see what's coming on the horizon and they don't know what to do about it. They're fearful of where's my provision? What happens if if they get this one world government, what happens by ushering in, you know, three years ago, they worried about, am I gonna keep my job or not? If I do something, they're wanting me to take. And, but what God says is don't be shaken in your mind. You are to be of a sound mind by the renewing of your mind, by the water of the word of God, the transformational power of the word of God. So do not be soon shaken or be troubled neither by spirit nor by word, so no matter what they say, do not be troubled by it, because greater is he that is in you than he that's in the world, and you have the word of God, and that trumps everything, everything. There is no word more powerful than that, nor by letter as from us. See, after First Thessalonians, actually, there was a forgery going around that was Second Thessalonians, that they had, a forger wrote it and said that the, the rapture had already happened and the tribulation was about to start. And so that's what that reference is there, nor by letter as from us. See, what we're reading is actually kind of third Thessalonians. The second one was a fake one. As that the day of Christ is at hand. Now the day of Christ, not the day of the Lord. The day of Christ is at the rapture. That's the day of Christ. That's when we go home. We stand before the Bema seat. The Lord rewards you for your faithful service. And then the tribulation starts after the Antichrist is, re is revealed. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. Now, don't let any man deceive you. That day, what day? The day of Christ, the rapture, shall not come, except there come a falling away first. Now, in the ancient, ancient writings, um, this verse is actually translated as a departure. There has to be a departure first. And you can view this as the great departure of the church, but when that happens, there's also a great falling away of apostasy where people turn from God. And actually, if you look at this, there's only one other place this word is used, and it has to do with the Jews turning from God. So this may be a reference to actually to all of the Israelites, the Jewish people, turning to the Antichrist after the church is removed. 
Now, so those are just, this verse has been debated and speculated for thousands of years. So uh, read it and ask the Holy Spirit to teach you about it. And that man of sin, that's a, a title of the Antichrist, be revealed the son of perdition, another title of the Antichrist, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worshiped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Remember ye not, that's also one way we know the temple will be rebuilt, uh, that the Antichrist will be in the Holy of Holies, declaring himself to be God. Remember ye not that when I, was with, when I was yet with you, I told you these things, and now ye know what withholdeth, that he might be revealed in his time. For the mystery of iniquity, now what withholdeth is the Holy Spirit, that's what's indwelling you and I, it's withholding the, re- the revealing of the Antichrist. Okay, for that mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now letteth, the restrained Holy Spirit, will restrain or let until he be taken out of the way. Remember when Jesus and John said, I must leave so the comforter can come? See, they were, they were somewhat exclusive of one another. Jesus had to leave so that he could send the Holy Spirit. Well, the same is true. The Holy Spirit must be taken so that Jesus can return. And for whatever reason in God's program, they don't coexist where during the church age, at least, so that the Holy Spirit indwells you and Jesus is on the earth at the same time. Now, it happens in the, in the millennium, obviously, like we mentioned, Israel will be filled with the Holy Spirit. But in any case, for the mystery of iniquity doth already work, only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way, and then shall that wicked be revealed whom the Lord shall consume. The Lord shall consume with the spirit of what? His mouth. Remember, and he returns in Zechariah 14, it's by the word of his mouth, and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Even him, verse nine, whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power, and here it is, the great deception, and signs and lying wonders with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. Now, you may be asking yourself, Okay, Satan is working through the Antichrist, all power and signs and lying wonders. What is that going to look like? I have no idea. I think you're seeing some of it right now with the, the UFO or UAP disclosure and what's going on there. I think that's a, a deception that's coming upon the world. I think there's a lot of lying signs and wonders that the Antichrist is going to do. Obviously, he receives a head wound and then he's resurrected, that's a lying sign and wonder. I think there's a lot that's gonna come upon the earth that you and I can't even fathom and imagine, which is why Jesus said it will be the worst time in human history. And praise God, we're not appointed to it. Praise God. But when the bottomless pit is opened and and demonic hordes and foul and unclean spirits and fallen angels are released on the earth, I think you and I have no imagination no capacity to imagine what that is even going to look like or be like. And no wonder it takes the living God himself in the flesh to return and to wipe it out, to reclaim dominion of the earth because it was given to man, a man must take it back, which is why Jesus became a man to die for us. And for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie that they all might be damned who believed not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. 
Now, Matthew 24, verse 24, this is where Jesus promises to protect us from that great deception. For there shall arise false Christs and false prophets and shall show great signs and wonders insomuch that if, if, underline that word if in your Bible, just underline it, bold it, you know, circle it, uh, paint it, I don't know, highlight it somehow. And every single day when you wake up, go and check and make sure that if is still there because it's still gonna be there when you wake up. If it were possible, so if it's not possible, praise God it's not possible that we as his very elect, as the people that are saved, do not have that appointed for us, the great deception and the wrath to come. Okay, in verse three here, back to Zechariah. Mine anger was kindled against the shepherds and I punished the goats for the Lord of hosts hath visited the flock, the house of Judah, and hath made them as his goodly horse in the battle. Now in this verse, the Hebrew word for I punished and hath visited, it's the same. It carries with it two means. It means favor when directed to the person, but adding a preposition, it actually, and added to the person, it means disfavor. So it's just a grammatical kind of nuance in the Hebrew there. The shepherds is a reference to the leaders. God's people, like sheep, have always required guidance as they're apt to wander around. They, you, you, I mean, I know all of you know a lot of other Christians in your life and have known them for a long time. They will find any loophole, any hole in the fence you can imagine to try to sneak through and do something they shouldn't do. I mean, you know it's true. You're laughing because you know it's true. They will look for any excuse, anything to do something that they know really they shouldn't be doing. And that's why God set up this whole thing with a shepherd. Now, Jesus is obviously the good shepherd from John 10.10 and 10.14. Now, what's Isaiah 53.6 say? All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord hath laid on him. Who's the him? Jesus, the iniquity of us all. The shepherds of Israel, they actually had turned to the occult from Zechariah 11. And the nation repeats this mistake in the tribulation when accepting the idol shepherd. That's another title of the Antichrist in Zechariah 11, verse 17. Woe to the idol shepherd. It's I-D-O-L on purpose that leaveth the flock. That's why that phrase, along with, coupled with what Jesus said, that another shall come in my name and him you, he, him you shall receive. That coupled with this, that leaveth the flock, lead many people to believe that either the Antichrist or the false prophet, one or the other, remember there's two players involved, one of them comes out of, out of Israel and one of them is a Gentile uh, because it's an idle shepherd that leaveth the flock. And this is the physical description of him. The sword shall be upon his arm and upon his right eye. His arm shall be clean dried up and his right eye shall be utterly darkened. So remember, he, he takes a blow somehow in, the, in a battle during the tribulation is resurrected. But Israel's leaders have a history of leading them astray. I mean, if you, if you just read through the Old Testament, you see that everywhere, everywhere. It's constant. That's in Jeremiah 23 and Ezekiel 34. But you know, the church today is also full of a lot of shepherds leading God's people astray. And it's heartbreaking it is so sad. You know, in a famine, in a famine, people, if you study famines in history, 
people will eat anything in a famine. And for the last however many years, 100 years, 50 years, put some number on it, longer than I've been alive, the church, there's been, within the church globally, there's been a famine of the word of God. And because of that, anyone can get up on a stage and stand behind a pulpit and say something and the people will eat it because there's been a famine. They don't know what's truth and what's not truth. And you see a lot of Christians who have a lot of views that when you study the Bible, you recognize, boy, that's not right. I mean, just go talk to a group of Christians about gay marriage to start and, and look at the division quickly. There's a lot of division on that. And it's very, it's very straightforward. It is a black and white issue in the word of God. But because of the famine, people can get up and say that's okay and ordain it from the pulpit and the stage and God's people just eat it up. And it is absolutely heartbreaking. It is heartbreaking. So what we need to do and what all of us need to do is pray for those people. You know, pray for those pastors, pray for those people that they learn the truth and that they repent and turn back to the word of God. Now the term goats here, it's not a complimentary term from Isaiah 14, nine refers to them as the chief ones of the earth in the bottomless pit. Remember in the 75 day interval, Jesus comes back, Revelation 19, in Daniel 12, there's a 75 day interval that a lot of cleanup happens. And during that time in Matthew 25, Jesus has the sheep and goat judgment and he separates the sheep and the goats based on how they treated Israel during the tribulation. And the goats are not the side that you wanna be on. Uh, praise God, none of you will be in that situation. We'll be out of here before then. But in any case, be very cautious of false comfort, false peace, and counterfeit shepherds. Uh, they are abundant. And just be cautious of that. You need to use discernment on people that you listen to, what you take in in your life. Um, things can, seeds can be planted that you don't even know really are off until years down the road and they've kind of grown and you've accepted this and things don't sit right with you then. It, Satan always plays the long game. I'm just telling you, for everyone in here, Satan always plays the long game. It is not, you're not gonna leave this room and see him with a pitchfork and a big long red tail saying, hey, come over here, you know, come sit here at this table with me. It's subtle, it's long, it's, uh, he's deliberate, he seals up the sum of all wisdom and beauty from Ezekiel 28. He is the most cunning adversary you have in your life. And if you are letting false teaching and false shepherds in your life, you can eventually be led astray. So just be careful. If, if you're listening to things that don't sit right with you from the word of God, listen to that. Take that as a, as a signal from the Holy Spirit and listen to him and ask him. Okay, the horse is in the battle, his goodly horse in the battle. Proverbs 21, verse 31, the horse is prepared against the day of battle, but safety is of the Lord. So God always does that. He is your refuge. Okay, in verse four here, out of him came forth the corner, out of him the nail, out of him the battle bow, out of him every oppressor together. Now, out of him is a reference back to verse three, which was Judah. Remember, we just talked about Judah. So out of Judah came forth the cornerstone. I'm sure all of you are familiar with Jesus is referred to as the headstone of the corner all over the Bible. The cornerstone out of Judah. 
Zechariah 4, 7, Psalms 118, Matthew 21, verse 42, Mark 12, verse 10, Luke 20, verse 17, Acts 4, 10 and 11, Isaiah 28, 16, 1 Peter 2, 1 through 8, Ephesians 2, 20, on and on and on it goes. The headstone of the corner, remember the, the cornerstone was rejected. The stone that was rejected has become the headstone of the corner by the Jews. Okay, it's also a stumbling block to the Jews in Romans 9, 32 through 33, 1 Corinthians 1, 23. The rock that followed them in the wilderness from 1 Corinthians 10, 4 was Christ from Exodus 17, verse 6. Daniel 2, remember the statue, the stone cut without hands, comes in from heaven and shatters at the 10 toes where the Antichrist has risen out of and shatters all the Gentile kingdoms. That's Jesus, the stone cut without hands. Matthew 21, verse 44. This is a verse that you need to remember for all of your unsaved friends and you need to think about this and pray for them. Whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken. See, when you surrender your life to Christ and you fall on the stone, the rock that is Jesus, and you are broken before him, you're saved. You're broken, your life is saved. It's again, I've said this a few times, it's the only dying you will ever do, you will ever do in your life is that moment when you die to Christ. But on whomsoever the rock shall fall, this rock, it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. You know, every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord. And the question is, do you do that willingly in this life or do you do it forcibly in the next? And that's, that's the issue at hand. The nail or stake or peg, Remember the tabernacle was set up with silver stakes. It rested on silver sockets, speaking of blood. Silver always speaks of blood in the Bible. The tabernacle was carried around on silver, silver sockets, the blood of Christ. When it was set up, the nails and the stakes were also silver. Okay, Isaiah 22 speaks of the nail, speaking of Jesus, that it will be fastened in a sure place. The battle bow is a reference to an avenger or conqueror. Now remember in Exodus 15 verse three, one of my favorite verses, the Lord is a man of war. Now, isn't that amazing in Exodus 15, the Lord is referred to as a man? A man. They didn't know that Jesus was to be a man yet, but yet right there, God says the Lord is a man. The Lord is his name. Okay, the Lord of hosts or armies will triumph, and that's in Zechariah 12 and 14, okay, from the battle bow. Okay, verse five here. And they shall be as a mighty men, as mighty men, which tread down their enemies in the mire of the streets in the battle, and they shall fight because the Lord is with them. And the riders on horses shall be confounded. Now, the word mighty men here in the Hebrew is actually gibberim. It, it could be a hint of something much deeper. Remember in Genesis 6 that the Nephilim became the gibberim, the mighty men. Nimrod, remember Nimrod? He became a gibberim. Uh, that word is very unique and special. Now, the riders on horses could be a prophetic reference to the coming war of Ezekiel 38 and 39. From Ezekiel 38, verse 15, and thou shalt come from thy place out of the north, God speaking to Gog and Magog, and many people with them, all of them riding upon horses, a great company and a mighty army. So in Zechariah 10, 5, when God says, the riders on horses shall be confounded, he's probably prophesying to the war that's yet future in Ezekiel 38 when God 
intervenes and strikes down Gog and Magog. Now, Gog is a, is a demon title from Amos 7, but he goes to fight for Israel in that time. Okay, verse 6 here. And I will strengthen the house of Judah, and I will save the house of Joseph, and I will bring them again to place them, for I have mercy upon them, and they shall be as though I had not cast them off, for I am the Lord their God, and will hear them. So at this point, Israel had returned from the Babylonian exile for roughly 20 years. Okay, so this may be a reference to the second regathering after the dispersion in 70 AD, that God's going to regather them and hear their cry, and he will hear their cry at the end of the tribulation. That's Hosea 5.15. I will go and return to my place till they acknowledge their offense and seek my face. In their affliction, they will seek me early. Now, Jesus is saying, I will go and return to my place. So that means he's left it once. He died. He's gone to return to it. He'll, he'll be there until they, the Jews, acknowledge their offense for forsaking the Messiah. And in their affliction during the tribulation, they'll seek his face. And Hosea 6 documents their prayer, actually. Now, in verse 7 here, and, the, and they of Ephraim shall be like a mighty man, and their heart shall rejoice as through wine, thorough wine. Their children shall see it and be glad, and their heart shall rejoice in the Lord. Now, the full restoration of Israel will bring much rejoicing. Just remember that. Now, the IDF today, the Israeli Defense Forces, are acting like a mighty man. They are. So this, is, this verse has a lot of deep meaning their hearts are beginning to rejoice in victory over what Hamas and Hezbollah and all these terrorists did back in October, um, early October. Now, the word here, hiss, the word hiss here, it actually means more of like a whistle or a whisper, and you can find that in Isaiah 7. You know, some estimates say there were about 12 million people in Israel at the time of the diaspora in 70 AD. Okay, so when God's gathering them together, Okay, they shall be a mighty man. Their heart shall rejoice as through wine. Yet their children shall see it and be glad. Their heart shall rejoice in the Lord. And in Zechariah verse eight, I will hiss for them and gather them for I've redeemed them and they shall increase as they have increased. So if you think there are about 12 million people in 70 AD, there are about 15 million Jews today. So they've, been, they've increased very modestly, but they have increased. Now, if you look at the breakdown in that pie chart, 51% of Jews live in the United States. So that's about 7.65 7 million. 30% of the Jews live in Israel, about 4.5 million. And actually, if you, if you pay attention, the Holy Spirit over the last three years has been calling the Israelites home. If you, if you watch the news and the headlines, legitimate Jewish people are being summoned back home by God to get back to their holy, to their holy land. There's, there's this pull from the Holy Spirit to gather them back in the land. And they're being gathered from all over the world, which is fascinating. Okay, in verse nine here, we're just about finished. I will sow them among the people and they shall remember me in far countries and they shall live with their children and turn again. Remember me in far countries. Now, in Leviticus 26, 18 and Ezekiel 4, um, God has, if you combine those two prophecies in Ezekiel 4, Ezekiel laid on his side for a combination of 430 days, which God equated to 430 years of judgment. So they said, God said, hey, you're, you're going to be judged for 430 years. 
Now, they spent 70 of those years in captivity in Babylon, so they had 360 years left. There hasn't been a 360 to fit anywhere um, in Israel's history, but if you study Leviticus 26, 18, God promises, I will punish you. If you don't listen to me, I'll punish you seven times more for your sins. So if you take that 360 that's left and you multiply it by seven, you get 2,520. Now on God's calendar for 360 day years, what you do is you actually take, it comes out to 907,200 days for all of you that, you knew that in your head, I'm, I'm sure. But 907,200 days, when Israel was released to go back to their homeland, if you take that timing from 606 BC, you add 69 years, 537 BC, July 23rd was when they were released, historically from records, and you add to it the 907,200 days, you land on May 14th of 1948 when Israel became a, a nation again. And God prophesied that all the way back in Ezekiel, combining it with Leviticus. And of course, Zechariah's name here in, in verse nine means the Lord remembers. And so the Lord's been regathering them and he has this locked in for them. And they continue to be gathered from all around the world. Okay, the last couple of verses here. I will bring them again also out of the land of Egypt and gather them out of Assyria. There are no Jews there today almost, almost zero. And I'll bring them into the land of Gilead and Lebanon and place shall not be found for them. Verse 11, and he shall pass through the sea with afflictions and shall smite the waves in the sea and, shall the, and all the deeps of the river shall dry up and the pride of Assyria shall be brought down and the scepter of Egypt shall not depart away. You know, God delivered their, his people through the Red Sea. The Jordan was, a part, was parted to allow them into the promised land. He's gonna dry up the Euphrates in the tribulation during, to deliver them again as the armies of the east come in. But he, his deliverance through water, it's just fascinating if you study that. But Egypt and Assyria, you could think of that as representing kind of all the enemies of Israel. Okay, and I will strengthen them in the Lord and they shall walk up and down in his name, saith the Lord. Now, isn't that amazing? You have two lords here. I will strengthen them in the Lord and they shall walk up and down in his name, saith the Lord. So you have the father and the son right here in this one verse in Zechariah 10, 12. Now in Zechariah 4, verse six, then he answered and spake unto me saying, this is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel, saying, not by might nor by power, but by, by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. So he's gonna strengthen Israel by his word and let's also be strengthened in God Almighty. And when you're strengthening God Almighty, you will not start to drift away and go through this process. Remember, Satan always plays the long game, as I mentioned. And the entire book of Hebrews is, is structured around these five warnings to the church. Do not drift away. Do not let your heart be hardened. Do not fail to mature. Do not commit willful sin and the danger of refusing. And it's a, it's a pattern. And actually, what, when we were studying this in Hebrews, what God told me is it actually moves like a snake. So you drift, your heart starts to become hardened, you fail to mature, you commit willful sin, you refuse God, and in refusing, you commit more willful sin, it's going back up. Then you fail to mature even further, your heart gets even more hard, and you drift further away. And it's a pattern by God, or that God set up in Hebrews, but it's a pattern that the enemy set up that actually slithers like a snake. And 
it's a warning for all of us that we've got to find our strength in the Lord. And the book of Hebrews, it's an amazing book for you to be encouraged, be encouraged in your life and find your strength in the Lord. Because just like Israel is gonna find their strength in Yahweh in the tribulation, we need to find our strength in him now. And so do that. Get into the word and find your strength. Now, if you're, if you're not saved, if you come across this, if you come across this video and we're not here, you know where we are. Uh, we're in heaven. God's called us home. But if, you're, if you find this and you're around the world somewhere and you're not saved right now, it's so simple. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. And according to Isaiah 1 verse 18, your sins will be as white as snow that moment. And so if you, if you need to do that right now, get on your knees wherever you are and confess with your tongue that Jesus, you are Lord and that you died for me and you will forever be a part of the greatest family ever put together in the history of the earth. And I pray you do that. Lord, we thank you so much for this time together. We thank you that we get to gather right here around your word as your family, Lord Jesus, that you are raising a family. And Lord, I do pray that each one of us would be strengthened by your word, just as Israel is strengthened in you in the tribulation. I, and right now, by your might, as you're protecting them, Lord, I pray that as things heat up, that we would be strengthened in your word to live for you, to walk out your commandments and your directives for our lives, and that God, we would find a deeper place of relationship with you, King Jesus. So we thank you for it, God, and we thank you for this time together. Be with us in the week ahead and speak to us out of your word. Lord, be with us as we open up Zechariah 11 right here next week. And Lord, I thank you for everyone that you are speaking to in these times. Continue to pour your spirit out upon us as the church, Lord. And let us foster and strengthen and grow an unashamed bride looking for your return, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. In your precious and matchless name we pray, amen. amen.